Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We have a really good show for you today, I think. Uh, it's filled with a lot of information, and we have a guest that we're really excited about. Her name is Trey Kwan. She's an activist in the Nurses Union, and she works in an ICU in New York City. Uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about what the past few months have been like for her, but also, you know, I think something that gets overlooked quite a bit, which is just how this has economically and, and in terms of labor affected nurses in the city. Oh, we, we do see some of that, I think, in the way that the media has covered this as a sort of heroic story. But what we don't see as much, I think, outside of questions about personal protective equipment is just how nurses have been dealing with this and what their labor concerns are. And so we're excited to talk to her about that. Um, as always, I have my two co-hosts here today with me, Andy Liu and Tammy Kim. How are you guys doing today? Hey, Great. Uh, how, Tammy, how's New York? You're the, you're the only one of the three of us who are in, in New York City. We're all still sheltering in place, and I haven't gone out in like two weeks, so I'm not the best <laughs> spokesperson for my city. Um, the most contact I have with people is getting groceries for some elders in the building and cheering so, for the essential staff every night. Oh, do you do that? Do you do the, uh, do you do the stuff do. outside and, and cheer? Yeah, and I actually... I have some old Korean percussion instruments that I've been deploying. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Do you wear like a hanbok and and, and, and with like the big log drum and there's a whole ritual to it, Jay, every night? (laughs) It's very nationalistic. Uh, Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised. Yeah. That's um, (laughs) that here, what they do, and you know, as I think I've mentioned on the show before, I'm in the East Bay and I'm in an extremely remote part of the East Bay. And, uh, but, you know, I do have neighbors, even though it's hard to see them. Everybody howls at eight o'clock at night. Have you heard about this? Howls? They howl, they howl like wolves. And it's, huh, it's, weird. it's really weird. And I don't really understand it. But I think it's like, you know, to let out like the primal frustration of living in these conditions and to sort of give out a, I don't know, like if it was like, um, beatnik times, so it would be like, this is my, you know, like, yeah. derived from derived from Whitman, like, this is my howl into the universe, which would make sense like given, yelp. yeah, yeah, like, right. yelp. like yeah. <laughs> barbaric yap, like, it's, uh, that's, that's what my neighbors, if you saw them, you'd be like, that's exactly it, you know, that's exactly what they're doing, <laughs> but, um, are you, are you sure there aren't actual wolves out there howling? No, there are actual coyotes all around here because okay. uh, they have been invading our property every single day now because oh, there are chickens next door that they're trying to kill. Anyway, oh. the howling is fucking crazy, you know? It's just like, <laughs> I, it keeps going on. It goes on for like two minutes. And now, Tammy, I don't know if you have moved nearby me, but people have started drumming along with the howling. And so it's like howling, <laughs> drumming, howling, drumming for two minutes. Like and, yeah, look, I get it. It's it's. I think it's wonderful <laughs> to have terrible. A, have like a collective thing that everyone does. But applauding the 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 essential workers makes total sense to me. But this like insane howling just doesn't make any sense. I don't know if it's just Oakland or if it's just the Bay Area, but it it's it definitely is a thing here. Um, Andy, is there anything you that uh, people in Philly do? Um, I don't actually know. We, we live right by a hospital, but we I actually haven't heard anything. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I can't report on anything. Okay, so Philly is not about <laughs> about communal expressions of, yeah. of rage. Been, Philly has been pretty, I think it's handled it pretty well. There's so many hospitals in this city. Um, and yeah. 
I think there's an article a while back in the Times about how Philly handled it a lot better. Yeah. New York, and they claimed it's because the 1918 Spanish flu is yeah, still fresh, still fresh in people's memory. With that, that was a little bit dubious. Is there anyone who was alive in 1980? <laughs> They'd have to be 102 years old right now. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, yeah. I. I. Uh, it seems like shaming New York is the new sort of a yeah. New York. Um, thing to do which is to just say that uh right. all the other country all the other countries all the other cities listen to science but new york they're so backwards and stupid and they didn't <laughs> listen to science which i think will ultimately at some point turn into a real examination of why uh cuomo not cuomo so much but why de blasio was so reluctant to turn i don't think any of this is fair by the way but why he was so reluctant to shut down the schools oh you don't think it was fair okay yeah, and they'll say that it was because he's a social justice warrior and he was caring about, like, you know, homeless kids and, you know, like, he was yeah. saying all these slogans and that's what led to all these deaths. I, I think that's going to be the... Maybe, do you guys agree with that? Like, I, I think that's definitely going to be the narrative. I just... And I also think it's going to be generally unfair. I think it's... The narrative I was reading was that Cuomo... It's more Cuomo than de Blasio. De Blasio actually wanted to act before Cuomo did. He wanted um, to shut down the city before. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've seen a lot of piling on Cuomo. And it's not so much like this date versus that date, but rather that it was all symptomatic of Cuomo's just like, you know, uh, desire not to like, desire to gut the healthcare industry in New York. And where? Okay. I was going to say, where are you seeing this? Are you seeing, seeing this in amongst leftist academics who hate his austerity politics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. But also, like, the, po- the post in the Daily News. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Filled yeah, with academics who hate feeling. austerity politics. Right. Um, all right. So speaking of Cuomo, our first topic today, I think is quite interesting, and it's something that we talked to Max about. Max is a reporter in Korea who gave us a lot of information, I think, about uh, contact tracing and how they do that in Korea. And... It seems like the United States is now kicking this off, right? And um, New York's Cuomo announced that there would be somewhere between like 1,500 and 8,000 contact tracers. He even posted job listings where the average salary is like between fifty-seven, sixty-five thousand dollars $65,000. The requirements are very fuzzy, but it seems like you have to have basically a college degree or have worked in the healthcare field. So it's not, it's not so difficult. The bar is not so high for people, for this to be a job for a lot of people to do. California keeps making mention of starting contact tracing program. They don't have a particularly good program in place. But, like, uh, yeah, is that, like, I mean, given what we heard a couple episodes about, ago about the difficulties of doing this without universalized health care, without a centralized system, uh, Tammy, like, what do you think? Do you think that this is something that, like, or, like, what do you think of this giant effort now to get contact tracing out? I'm... Based on our conversation with Max, I wondered if it was too little too late and if the virus has progressed so much that we can't actually do this through contact tracing. On the other hand, it's encouraging that we are exploring things other than this sort of, you know, fantasy of vaccination or, you know, full treatment that people have been espousing, which is ridiculous, I think. Yeah, the fantasy of 18 months of shelter in place as well. Right, exactly. So, you know, I mean... I guess as a complement to a reduced shelter in place, it would it's good. But the numbers are so tiny, though. I don't know what to think of it. You know, as a jobs program, I think it's good. <laughs> yeah. So, like in Wuhan, right? Um, just and you can say that all their numbers are fake, and I would agree that many of their numbers are fake. 
But they had 9,000 contact tracers there to deal with an uh, outbreak that, you know, according to them, killed 3,000 people. But even if you believe it killed 40,000 people, which I think is probably much higher than it actually killed, um, that's a huge ma- labor force, you know, to deal with yeah. a city of 11 million people. Uh, uh, Annie, I don't know. How do you, do you think that this is feasible? Or do you think that this is a good step for, for the country? I think it's, um, like you said, if we're going to somehow end this without the magical vaccine, it would be necessary at some point down the road. But, like, it might make more sense for a place such as California or Washington State that has seen numbers begin to dwindle and you really can kind of isolate who has it and who doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, testing is the other big factor here. But in a place where it's just kind of rampant still and just like there's hundreds and thousands of cases uh, from social transmission every day, I, from what I'm, from my understanding, contact tracing is um, kind of useless at that point. Uh, the numbers have to get back down to where they were at the beginning. For it, and at that point, it, only, it almost becomes sort of like uh, re-prevention. Like it's preventative, yeah. but, uh, but like re-preventative, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have two questions, and they're very specific to our podcast ethos, which is sort of this like uh, truculent, um, angry, uh, <laughs> leftist, Asian but not Asian-American politics type of thing, right? The first is, do you think that this idea now that is taking hold that we should that where people finally seem to be getting it through their heads that perhaps we should follow Asia's example in all of this. Like, do you think this is going to work? Do you think that people are going to actually follow Asia's example? Or is it just like, because to me it feels, and I'll just say what I think first, it's just like, to me it just seems kind of like they're not actually researching what everything was. You know, they're just kind of flailing at possible solutions. And something that worked in a country that didn't have that much transmission is just going to be the next thing. And they're going to go down the checklist until they exhaust the checklist and realize they can't do any of it. Yeah. I do wonder, I mean, there was so much criticism of the South Korean and Singaporean model because they kept talking about it as contact, like high-tech contact tracing without any human intervention. It was like hyper-surveillance authoritarian. Um, And, you know, I mean, that's not, it's not fair, but it's also not entirely wrong in that there was (laughs) significant electronic surveillance. And as Max had talked about, CCTV footage and credit card receipts and all this stuff. So, you know, we're not committing to doing any of that, I don't think, in any of the contact yeah. tracing programs. So I'm not really sure how we think, you know, th- this is all kind of going to match up because it was interviews with a lot of electronic information that was, like, very strategically transmitted to people in the vicinity of those people. And yeah. we're not going to do that, right? I-, I don't, so I'm not sure. Yes, it's kind of half-hearted, I guess, in that sense. Yeah, and I don't think they're going to say, like, a person tested positive at, like, 15 Park Avenue, or, like, 146 Park Avenue, you know, apartment 3C, and he went to, uh, he went to, like, Citarella or something like that, you know? (laughs) Attention all (laughs) Zabar shoppers. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's it's difficult for me to figure out exactly what they're trying to do with these contact tracers either. So I have a buddy who was in... Um, Africa during the Ebola, one of the Ebola outbreaks, and he worked with contact tracers. So he was doing Doctors oh, wow. Without Borders. And he said that contact tracing is not that hard, you know. But the thing that he described was completely different than the thing that, you know, I think people want, which is a Korean model. The thing he described is just somebody picking up a phone and calling people and calling their contacts, close contacts, their friends and their family and saying, you know, this person has tested positive and you should be really careful and please don't go outside, you know. And if you get Ebola, then, like, you know, here are the people to call. But, you know, most likely it's like, well, you're just going to die, you know. So I think it is a slightly different. But 
I can't really tell if the United States version or if New York's version, which they're going to do, I think, with New Jersey and Connecticut in tandem, is going to be what he was describing, which I think is totally doable. You can have somebody pick up a phone and call people, you know, yeah. or if it's going to be this dystopian thing where if somebody saw like the inside of like a, you know, like a white Sprinter van and there are all these screens up, you know, showing like CCTV and, and, and like a drone tracking somebody going to like two bros pizza, you know, and then like all these messages <laughs> blasting out everywhere. Um, I think the latter actually might chafe against against like American ideas of privacy. Yeah. Although I didn't feel that way two weeks ago, but now I kind of am starting to think that way. Andy, what do you think? Like, is, is this going to yeah, be something that's going to piss people off? We can't do overnight what they have, but a much low tech version is possible. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure if it's how effective it would be. People were already kind of doing it at a very like basic private level earlier at the beginning of this a few months ago. I had a Call, you know, I knew a colleague who knew someone who was contacted because they were in a meeting with someone who was later tested positive, and so the yeah. company itself took the prerogative, right, the prerogative to to reach out to everyone. So this is, I think, it just seems so haphazard and slapdash to me. The way it just reading the articles, like it's in one place, it's an NGO doing it, it's a foundation doing it, yeah. it's a city government, state government doing it. You know, I hope it works, um, but to Obviously, it's not the same thing as what Max was describing in South Korea. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it just seems very confused to me, and, and especially here in the Bay Area, where I think that we have so few cases and we have so much money that we could do it, you know? Like, But they, there's no plan. Like, They just say, we're going to do contact tracing, and there's no rollout of anything, you know? Um, second question I have, which is you know relevant to our podcast general ethos, which is... You know, people are talking a little bit about the economic destruction that is almost certainly going to happen to our country. And, you know, people are having magical thinking solutions of massive infrastructural big job programs that will get us out of this, you know, in the same way that the New Deal had. Mm -hmm. Somebody brought this up to me who uh, is a friend of mine, and I thought it was an interesting idea. And I even have a mechanism to address it, which is that could contract tracing become like a TVA type of thing? You know, let's say that the... Um, Let's say that the uh, virus is with us for the next year and a half before we get a vaccine and we're going to need an army of contact tracers. Hey, do you think that this could actually in some ways be a plus and be like a big way that the government could employ a lot of people who are out of work? Yes. I absolutely support it as a jobs program. And I think also there, like, have you guys heard of this, like, Latin American model of, like, promotora, like, health promotoras? No. It's just, like, health promoters. But it's basically what you guys were talking about in the low-tech version, which is kind of, like, community-based health educators who go mm -hmm. out and, you know, spread the gospel about, like, safety. And, you know, the same way that you see, like, you know, Gates Foundation projects in Africa, like, talking to people about using contraception or... But, you know, I think, like, if we are building up a healthcare infrastructure for this, that would be good. We could also use, like, errand running as a source of jobs. You know, there, I think there's a bunch of different options. Oh, so, like, TaskRabbit, but it's the government owns Kinda, it? Yeah, I saw, I mean, there was <laughs> a UNDP video. Rabbit. Yeah, there was a UNDP video out of Macedonia of yep. unemployed people running errands for elders. Totally into that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, Eddie, what, what do you think about this, like, massive, you know, TVA type of <clears throat> contact tracing idea? Like, is this the type of thing the government should be exploring or that yeah, leftists I mean, should be promoting, do you think? It definitely should, but I think it, it's not this particular program. It's, like, the bigger trend of the government for the last 40 years that, and, and what green, the Green New Deal also is, has zero support beyond, like, five people in Congress, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that 
the ult- ultimately what would make it feasible is if the government realized they could actually just print money and you know it, it'll, it'll be okay and they don't have to impose austerity on everyone. Um, but that doesn't seem like either party wants to fight for that idea in the in the near term. So even before we had coronavirus, the government um, there there are plenty of things the government could have been doing to promote. They could have just done the New Deal again. They could have built, rebuilt the freeways right. and rebuilt, yeah. you know, the train from NorCal to SoCal. But they obviously don't believe in um, actually like printing money and uh, yeah. Keynesian economics, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're all, yeah. They're all the other way on the other side of that by now. So I don't think I think I think I think the policy itself is not going to create a sea change. The sea change has to give us the policy. No, I agree, and I've you know I've been very disappointed, honestly, by how even people on the left are not discussing these types of possibilities that much, you know, where it feels like we're rhetorically stuck in a place where the liberals are going to discuss liberal things, right? Like, which is mostly just shaming poor people and Southerners. And the leftists are, like, when the la- when, when all this was happening and, like, the sort of Twitter left, I'm using quotation marks in the air, started discussing Joe Rogan again, and I was like, come on, you know? Like, just stop. Like, who fucking cares? It's Joe Rogan. But it feels like... These are all things that are, uh, you know, that we're stuck in some sort of political discussion stasis, right? And that nobody wants to actually say anything about this because it's super scary and I totally understand. And and every solution seems like a bad solution. But, yeah, I I, I don't quite understand why why people aren't talking about the using uh, infrastructure plan like the Green New Deal to create like contact tracing programs isn't discussed every single day by people on the left. And then I think that maybe it's just because perhaps like some of the expression of the left is only in relation to liberal media, you know, and it's just how it interacts and criticizes liberal media and the actual programs don't make that much sense. The left, the left, the people who supported the Green New Deal would support it, right? But you're just saying the people who oppose the Green New Deal for the same reasons they oppose the Green New Deal, um, I don't know, Green New Deal, uh, they're self-limiting <laughs> themselves. Um, uh, like this, I think. I think what you're getting at is the severity and the gravity of this has not sunk in and like transformed the Democratic Party in, within yeah. eight within eight weeks. Well, like uh, the leftists should be screaming <laughs> that the government is going should nationalize everything right now. Right. I think it's part of my point. And uh, like for example, like every like the 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 extent of this problem. In nursing homes, I think, you know, we've talked about this all privately, is massive, you know, and I hope it's something that we can talk about with Trey in some sort of way, but, um, like, they cannot make standards of entry and standards of care and standards of of protection in nursing homes, uh, you know, they can't make them even across the board because they're all privately owned, right? Like, Mm -hmm. given that when one of these, when coronavirus hits one of these places, the death rate is absolutely catastrophic. You know, like, why not argue to nationalize nursing homes? You know, like, why is the left not arguing that? Well, there um, is. I mean, the Are they arguing that? Am get, I missing it? <laughs> well, like, they get, like, very technically, they get every day these messages from the Center for Medicaid and Medicare uh-huh. Services, like, with the yeah. guidelines. So, like, they're not, they're nationally regulated in that they all have to abide by, like, Medicaid's rules. But, like, the chaos you're pointing to, I think, is that policymakers don't know what the hell to do. And we've talked a little bit about, like, the CDC and the masks and all that. And I think it just points to this fact that, yeah. like, we're like the science seems kind of made up. The rules yeah. seem kind of made up. And yeah. everyone's kind of scrambling. And then, as Andy was saying, there's five people who actually believe that we need, like, a federalized system. So, um, you know, how do we yeah. amplify them in Congress? <laughs> I was just reading about how, like, Cuomo, on the one hand, I mean... 
know, not to like blame everything on one guy, but he was they they made this they made this directive that the New York City or New York State nursing homes had to accept patients who had corona. Yep. And then after this huge yeah. outbreak, Cuomo was like, "Well, we don't run the nursing homes. They have to do it. They have to deal with that themselves, and we're not in charge of giving them protective equipment." Uh, and that's like crazy, right? And and I think that's. But what he's if he gets away with this, he's benefiting from the fuzziness of the distinctions of uh, yeah. or the the legislative like uh, jurisdictions, I guess, that the government mm-hmm. has over these nursing homes. Yeah, I, that that is. I think that's spot on. Um, do you want to hear my idea about this? <laughs> yes. No. Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's pretend it's a Shark Tank, and I need like a very short response from you. Flights are going to go down precipitously, right? They already have, but it's not like they're going to bounce back. What this means is that there's a ton of TSA agents, right, who are federal employees, who are going to be out of work. All those TSA agents have training in surveillance. They have training in screening. They have training in dealing with people. Although, you know, some people would not argue particularly (laughs) well, but I do think that people are a little too angry at TSA agents. I think that they should just convert the TSA agents who are out of work into contact tracers. Mm. It's a good idea, right? Like they're already on the federal, <laughs> they're already on the federal yeah. payroll. That's not anyway, bad. Why, okay. why, wait, why are, you, why are you giving them the inside track? There's a lot of people who could <laughs> use this job. <laughs> well, they're, they're going to be out of work, yeah. you know? A lot of people are out of work. I know, but journalists I, are gunning for these jobs, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, would give it, I, would give, I would give the I would give these jobs to a TSA agent before a journalist. Uh, like journalists, true. yeah. I mean, it's look, a major I, pay cut for the TSA agents and a yeah, major pay true. raise for the journalists. <laughs> that's, that's true. I don't. Most journalists would be like fifty-seven thousand dollars a year and benefits, yeah. like government benefits. Sign me up. Um, all these, right. these are good jobs, man. Um, Andy, the the thing that you just said, I think, will is provides us a nice segue into our next topic, which is a question about, um, you know, like what. How do we feel about the politics of shelter in place? Right? This is now week seven for me. I think it's week seven for both of you as well. Yeah. And the conversation has not shifted too much, uh, but it does seem like lines that were o- obviously always there are really getting calcified and that there isn't much way to think about it outside of, you know, shelter's good or, or shelter in place good or open the economy up again. Like, um, Tammy, how have you started thinking about this? Like, has your thinking changed from the beginning? It's so localized. And here in New York, it's such a disaster. I don't see what else we can do at this point. I mean, I think your guys' situations are more interesting. But here, yeah. what, what would possibly be the alternative in New York City at this moment? It's quite extreme over there. I mean, it's yeah. like the worst in the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> have you, like, did you see photos today that everyone was shaming? Like, all these New York Times reporters were shaming of, like, Central Park and people out, yeah. uh, you know. They looked socially distanced to me, yeah, but maybe they weren't. True. Like, but, like, uh, like, I don't know what these people want. Like, if I go out with my daughter and my wife and we sit on a blanket, you know, like, that's still social distancing. Right. I'm not going to place my daughter six feet away from us. But, um, I don't know, do you, do, you, do you think that people are still really committed to this there? It's... No, I mean, I think, yeah, definitely your point being like people are getting sick of it and everyone's getting a little loose with it is true. Like I can see evidence of that even on our, in the streets around my house. So, yes, that's 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 a good point. And we need to figure out what to do. But I really I don't know. I haven't mm-hmm. read anything that makes me think like, oh, we could do X, Y and Z to make this a bit better. Yeah. Andy, what about you? Like, I mean, like, how so, do you, are you thinking about how are you change, 
how are you how has your thinking about the politics of this specifically changed or has well, it changed a, a little bit i think as the science has gone well i don't know how clear it is but i think i've become much less paranoid about just like catching it from breathing it the air i think there are certain things that seem like they probably work like if we all wear masks and stand six feet apart and are outdoors on a sunny day the odds of getting it are probably much lower than if we're all like in a poorly ventilated home or something yeah yeah um so that's made me, you know, I've been going out with my daughter and trying to look for times and places where there's very few people around. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, first off, we, we, should, we have to recognize that this is a false choice that the government has forced us into. Yeah. If the government provided us all sorts of protective equipment, cheap masks, then it would make it a lot more feasible to go outside and kind of live um, the way that a lot of, of these East Asian countries that had a lot of cases continue to live um, without massive spread of, the, of these cases. But beyond that, I think, I'm not sure what I think about shelter in place right now, but I do think the conversation is being monopolized as an, just another referendum on Trump. Yeah. Uh, pre- precisely because Trump has made it or, you know, a referendum on himself. But it seems like if you even begin to question shelter in place, um, people might equate you with the sort of like the crazy gun toting uh, militia protesters that are, you know, was in Michigan, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's sure. sort of what my question is getting at. And, you know, maybe I think I asked it poorly, but the question is really just like, do you think that the, that the way in which liberals and, you know, progressives have, have really framed the shelter-in-place question, do you think it is sensitive enough to people's economic anxieties? Because... You know, every I mean, conversation Jay, Jay, that I have, you think. <laughs> I'll yeah. tell you soon, <laughs> every conversation that I have personally seems to, ref- you know, um, and these are with people who are very liberal um, and some of them who are leftists seems to reflect that, that yes, we think that there's a little too much scolding and a little bit too little, too little empathy, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't quite understand the rhetorical strategy, I think, from a lot mm-hmm. of these people. I wanted to know how you guys felt about it. <laughs> I, I don't mean... know. What do you think, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, I'm glad that you asked, and I will say <laughs> that uh, that I I am on the mind that that there's too much. That yes, I don't think that that look there's. There's a few things going on there now. There's part of it that is so virulent that I'll that I'll leave it out. And but it has to do with I think like the general comfort of people in the media who are making some of these accusations. Mm-hmm. We don't have to talk about that. But I think that outside of that, like there is there is a sense that feels extremely like it feels a little bit nimbyish to me, you know. And I I wanted to yeah. lay off saying this or thinking this for a while because I think it's you know it is. It's 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 a knee jerk reaction for me all the time, and I always question why I think everything that is liberal is nimbyish. But then, I also think like maybe if liberals stop being so nimbyish, that I would not feel that way. But it's <laughs> it's generally people who are like Patton Oswalt or something like that, you know, like people who are who are wealthy, who have access to a lot of of platforms, people who can work from home, like in here in the Bay Area, like we have a very high. Uh, ex- we have a very high polling rating, you know, that supports shelter in place, but it's because we have a ton of tech workers who have been doing it now for two and a half months. And for them, it's actually better because they don't have to go in the office, yeah. you know, and they still get all the work done. And then at three o'clock, they piss off and hang out with their families or they, totally. you know, they go on a Zoom call and have a beer. But Jay, um, Jay can you explain what NIMBY is and, why, and how that connects to what you're saying? Well, NIMBY is not in my backyard. So 
hallmark of democratic politics, which is that you are as self-righteous as possible about something, but when it comes to you actually paying the price or sacrificing for it, you won't, right? So the NIMBY aspect of this shelter in place, I would say, you know, at least from my, and I don't think it's all of it, I think it's maybe 10% of it, is that people really don't want to get sick. They really don't want their families to get sick, right? And because they don't have to actually shelter any of the economic burden, except in maybe losing some percentage of their, you know, 401ks in the stock market, which they don't fundamentally care about, because a lot of these people are very young, that in the end, their concern is to basically say that anybody who increases their personal risk of getting sick is like a moral degenerate who wants to kill their mother, you know? And that really is the tone of this stuff. And the, and so when the person comes up and says, hey, I have to go outside because my family is going to starve or I want this thing to end because I don't believe that the government is going to provide for me in the way that they say they are. And the only way that my kids don't starve or my family doesn't, I don't have generational poverty that results out of this is if we open back up this economy soon and, you know, we maybe take, we have more deaths than possible, but like I'm also thinking of my self-interest. Their response to this date has been to take all those types of concerns and say that like, and to put them all on like these militia guys in Michigan or something like that, you know? And it's such a, it's such a clear, I, I know I'm ranting here, but I'm almost done. It's like, first of all, that tactic of, of saying that like everything is astroturf and that, you know, like the, the real protests that are coming out are just funded by some sort of dark money thing that, that is propping up these like astroturf people. That's how the right wing talks about every single left Left, leftist protests, you know, or, or talks about every sort of Black Lives Matter protest. They say, these are outside agitators or professional protesters, and we don't have to listen to the concerns of any of the people there because we highlighted two people who fit that bill, right? That's what the left is doing to these protests. And the second part of it is that, uh, and I, look, they might be right, but I think it's rhetorically wrong to do that, you know, like, and it's strategically wrong because once you normalize that, then every single protest becomes that, right? Like, they can point to, they can say that, like, uh, that like uh, Linda Sarsour tweeted in in mm. favor of it, and that means the whole concern is dead, right? <laughs> um, the the second part of it though is that like I really do think that there has been a complete lack of concern about the economic realities that are going to fall out of this, yeah. and I it is I don't know why people are doing this except that I think they are scared past the point where they can kind of like wave the flag for Bernie and talk about the working class, you know, and 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 the evacuation of that has been expected, and this is where I reveal myself as being not, you know, a little bit less, like, pro-Bernie than some of the podcast listeners might be, or at least his supporters, you know? Like, I expected some of that evacuation to happen, but, like, yeah. I'm, I'm actually stunned by how, how deep it is, you know? It's like, we can't talk about people going broke. We can't talk about 20% unemployment without, saying, without being told that we're trying to kill somebody's mother. It's fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's the end of my rant. <laughs> I feel like in, like, among people who are organizing around the working class, there's less of a stark divide, but I do agree with you that kind of, like, on a mainstream sort of representational level, that, like, dichotomy has happened, and the problem, I think, also on the side of people who are feeling economic anxiety is that the sort of Trumpers and the kind of, like, the extreme part of that has given them a vocabulary that's actually not that. The vocabulary isn't, like, I'm having this I'm scared for my family and I need to work. The, yeah. It's more like, oh, there's actually these doctors who say it's safe now. Yeah. So they, you know, there's kind of like a, been an absorption of like a false scientific justification for it instead of an expression of just what it is, which is like 
this feeling of panic around like yep. your mental health and your economic security and you know but i mean the people there's been i think more productive discussions in less obvious places about this like where like i think a lot of like worker organizers are thinking about this and like unions and worker centers because their people have been out of work since day one yeah so yeah or risking new. their not, lives yeah, yeah they were the ones who were like first out of you know work like in the service industries especially yep. like hospitality right so you know and i think there there's been enough education where people aren't like oh yeah it's totally safe they're just but they're saying like no i want to stay home i don't want to do that job but also yep. i need the money i wish we yeah. were in that space together to have that conversation I know. Well, why, why do you think we're not in that space? Because Tammy, I 100% agree with you that we need to reach something like that. You know, like we need to be really, or else we're going to lose everybody, you know, and um, all these people who are very quietly watching TV or here reading the news and being like, does no one give a shit that I'm going to, you know, that uh, my food's running out and that I have two kids and that I don't know what the economy is going to be about. And all we're talking about is people on fucking beaches like i don't care you know or like right. you know the only people die, like it, the, all sorts of thoughts in everyone's head Andy, like what, what do you think how do you think that how do you think we get to a point where where the left is much more publicly and and full forcedly thinking about both things at once well i think like i agree with your rant a lot of your rant jay i think part of the problem is almost by definition right so this isn't even a problem this is like the systemic design the only people who are talking are the people who have the luxury to stay at home. Like Twitter is just real life now. Yeah. yeah. Or CNN is real life now, right? Yeah. Um, so by definition, we don't, we don't hear, we can't hear the people, well, we can obviously, like, but it's much more muted. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of having face-to-face encounters with the people who, are, um, who don't have a choice to just stay home um, from their job. And I think more generally what you guys are talking about is a problem that predates coronavirus, obviously, right? Like the the so-called left, the people the people who are supposed to be the left in this country have stopped talking about working conditions for a long time now. Yeah, yeah. Um, we could go back into you know, uh, I don't know how how crazy we want to go, but like you know what like what do Democrats talk about? It's about being social justice warriors and virtue signaling, and I don't I don't know if we want to go in that direction, right? <laughs> but uh, this is this was supposedly like what Bernie brought to the campaign to the Democratic Party which is to actually talk about, like, how much does it cost to live these days? How little money yeah. do people actually have? Um, yeah. and, these, and these difficult choices. And I think, you know, thinking, I, I haven't paid too much close attention to these protests, but it is striking to me that to the extent these are um, working-class people who are afraid of their livelihood, um, they're, as far as I could tell, they're probably articulating it through kind of right-wing language sure. of yeah. rights and freedom. Right, and this is perhaps symptomatic of the long-term trend in the U.S., where the Democrats have stopped talking to the working class, and the Republicans have appropriated the working class sentiments through, you know, like gibberish, like freedom and individuality and all that stuff, um, and and making those kind of the distorted version of working class politics mm-hmm. uh, in this country. And so the articulation isn't like. Um, you know, my livelihood and the boss, the bosses take our money. A lot of these protests take the form of like my personal freedom, you know, and um, that's not really, that's not really like a, that's not really a class um, articulation. 
Yeah, but don't you feel though that of all the people who are ripe for conversion, that these are part? Of, you know, that if they yeah. saw people basically saying, "Hey, government, you're not helping me out at all," and also, "I hate you, media," you know, and uh, you're a bunch of you know whatever, um, and uh, why is nobody figuring out the fact that my working conditions not only suck now, not only am I broke now. I was always broke, you know, like you were saying, Andy. Like, it seems like those people are the types of people who would be very open to this type of discourse, you know, and, and it is strange that, that to me, and I think this will happen, and this is my general hope, and Tammy, I wanted to ask you about this specifically, which is that right now we have this absolute nightmare catastrophe in, in meat processing plants, right, across the country, um, one particular in South Dakota. And I have started to see glimmers of people starting to organize around those concerns. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that can be expanded out into some sort of broader message, you know, like the, that they, that the left uses that one nightmare situation as a way to talk about, you know, broader things and to try and bring people in? Yeah, I think so. But I think they've been doing that. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too Pollyanna-ish about what exists, the infrastructure that exists for this sort of worker organizing on the left, but it, it's there. It's just extremely muted, and it's certainly not expressing itself in the Democratic Party, which is not a left party, obviously. But yeah, uh -huh. I mean, the meat processing organizing. Do you? I mean, is your question whether my question is, do you think that that it'll that this is the thing that will start to penetrate the broader conversation and maybe into even the Democratic Party? I don't you know, know, in the same way that like the wealth tax or like the uh, or questions about health care from Bernie, you know, uh, penetrated the Democratic Party. I think, yes, I think it's possible. I think it'll be a much less it'll be a less, much less probably extreme example than the meatpacking thing. And it'll be more of kind of this discourse that we've already seen around essential work and like okay. an appreciation of like unskilled labor, that category, you know. Today we're welcoming Trey Kwan, who is an amazing shop steward of the New York State Nurses Association and an ICU nurse at a hospital in Manhattan. Trey and I go way back to worker organizing on the Lower East Side. She was an amazing um, advocate and activist and sister to Latino and Chinese workers through organizations called NMAS and Chinese Staff and Workers Association. Um, and Trey is now also um, a socialist editor at Left Voice, which is kind of a news citizen news outlet and organizing vehicle. Welcome, hey, Trey. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for coming. <laughs> hey, Jay. <laughs> um, Trey, you've been doing a lot of advocacy recently around the coronavirus, obviously. Do you want to just say a little bit about, you know, how you got involved, um, you know, the timing of your involvement, because I know you have a personal angle on this, mm -hmm. too. Um, and what you've been seeing recently at the hospital that you're at. Sure. Um, yeah, so my baby was born on January 1st. Wow. Oh, congratulations. That was totally congratulations. unexpected. Wow. Yeah, yeah. rang in the new year and the decade with a big boom. Um, thank you. And my original plan, um, I had gone out a few weeks before I gave birth because I was having like minor pregnancy complications likely because I was super dehydrated from working in the ICU um, and I was planning wow. to go back um, after five six months after trying to get the hang a little bit of being a mom no idea what that mm -hmm. was about so 
but the pandemic hit in mid-March. Um, it was evident that the conditions and the squeeze on the nurses was going to be really bad. After seeing, you know, testimonies from healthcare workers in Italy and China and also just understanding that we would have a terrible level of preparedness given um, the, the, the system that we live in here uh, with the federal government, Trump at its head, even as well as um, just having this anarchic, corporatized healthcare system that never gave a damn about workers' lives. Uh, so I, I, you know, I was tore up about it for a little while. I spoke to my partner and he's also, he used to be a healthcare worker as well um, in his country. So he kind of got it, you know, like I couldn't watch on the sidelines. Um, and I decided to go back to work um, when Maya was about two and a half months. Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. or uh, almost wow. three months. You uh-huh. said that um, you were really skeptical yeah. from the, you know, that, that, or I guess skeptical isn't even the right word, that you knew that, that the protections for workers and nurses would be poor here in the United States. And did, mm-hmm. what made you feel that way or like and and was there any like glimmer of hope at any point or was it from the very beginning when you realized this was going to be bad that it was also going to be doubly bad for for healthcare workers uh the suspicions were confirmed <laughs> <laughs> i mean the feeling it's there because we 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 fight um as nurses first to advocate for our patients for basic resources in order to have any quality care and then as nurses to be humans on the job that's not at all a priority for the corporate healthcare systems that we work for um last year i don't know if y'all heard about the nurses strike buildup um where like 10,000 nurses were prepared to strike for safe staffing and even in a setting where bosses were saying, oh, this is not a time for give backs, don't even worry, you know, we're doing great. And we knew that the revenue and like these folks were spending millions of dollars on um, like NFL ads, commercials and, and whatnot and branding campaigns. Um, even in that context, yeah. they weren't willing to give us staffing. Does that, like that was a, I think that's a central uh hypocrisy that a lot of people have started to become aware of in some way, which is that, you know, people cheer out the window at seven o'clock, right? That um, there's going to be all these political ads that are going to be run against Trump about how he failed nurses, how he failed healthcare workers, and that they're heroes. But at the same time, it seems like people are also seeing like, wait, like, you know, the abandonment of all this stuff is not just because of a president, it's because of the entire system. I mean, how how does how does thinking about that make you feel like on a you know like does it um, you know when you're just like oh if somebody says like oh you're a hero we appreciate you like what are, what are the feelings that go through your head? I mean, it's a good question, Jay, because I don't even ask myself how I feel anymore. Um, <laughs> I I don't I the system needs to be destroyed. You know, the, I mean, and by that I mean the people who uh, pretend to, to lead the, the agenda, the people who control how healthcare is unevenly and distributed. I, 
I mean, it fuels me to like fight back more. I don't, the fear of, of getting coronavirus is something that's so, it's more abstract than for me, the need to like um, organize an international and working class um, revolution. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. It, um, I don't feel angry. I'm not mad at like the neighbors, the folks who um, are mutual aiding, the folks who are coming together and like trying to make the best of the situation. Um, I just think that, you know, the level of catastrophe and mismanagement of this crisis is is um, lies in the hands of the state and, and capitalists and, and not in like individuals being selfish or misbehaving and not social distancing properly or not wearing masks, you know? I mean, Tracy, yeah. New York City is probably the worst hit in the whole world, I think, if the numbers are to be believed. And it's a Democratic mayor and it's a Democratic governor. So I've seen that in your writing and in your interviews, you've made it a point to say this isn't just, this whole disaster is not a Trump thing. But, and I think a lot of us and the listeners have this feeling that there's something wrong with the Democratic Party. But I was wondering if you could give some more specifics about what exactly are the steps that you feel like the Democratic Party in New York City and New York State, why, how did they mess this up? And why do you think they messed it up? I mean, if you look at Cuomo's track record, it's very clear. On April 15th, I went to a protest organized by rank and file nurses, PCAs. And if you ask them, what was it like here before the pandemic? They will say horrendous. Why? We were always short-staffed. And Cuomo and corporate healthcare systems were trying to shut us down. They were trying to close the acute care facility at Kingsbrook Medical Center for years to convert it to um, you know, luxury housing or whatever is more profitable than providing essential healthcare to a mostly black and brown community. Um, Cuomo has been a broker for developers, for real estate, for hospital corporations to like mow down community hospitals over the last uh, decade. And the Democratic Party is absolutely responsible um, in New York, you have like this weird situation where so many workers are unionized, yet why don't you see strikes in a time of a pandemic where workers, members are literally dying? You have 104 MTA workers who've died. Yeah. And it's because, you know, there's, a, there's a, um, this truce between, you know, union bureaucracies with the Democratic Party establishment. Mm -hmm. And it's like everyone's got their eye on a prize of this piece of legislation, these crumbs that they've been working on, and they're stuck to that routine of fighting for those things instead of seeing the scale and the depth of this problem and willing to mobilize and having trust that that's where our power is, actually. Um, and so a lot of the direct actions that maybe you guys saw, they were very, you know, simple, just statements about the conditions inside the hospital. You'd think that would be a really obvious, you know, uh, tactic that unions across the city would take. Let the public know, you know, we all need to come together. This is a concern of, of public health. The fact that like healthcare workers cannot take care of your parents or your daughters or your whatever properly. Mm -hmm. Or that Amazon workers who are getting sick and are now essential workers are the main are at 
are at risk more than anyone else because they're being forced to work in unsafe conditions. But that wasn't happening. So a lot of these um, small wildcats or walkouts or strikes or even small press conferences have been carried out by individual rank and file workers who are like, this is, that's mm-hmm. it. You know, we need to let folks know what's going on. Who, who are your coworkers? How would you describe the demographics of your workforce? Uh, nurses are probably 90, 90 to 95% women. Um, at Sinai and a lot of the city, in H&H, they're by far uh, women of color, immigrant women from Southeast Asia and, and East Asia, as well as um, Caribbean and African immigrant women and then African-American women. Um, In my hospital... And H&H is the Health and Hospitals Corporation, right? The the public public hospital system in New York Mm -hmm. City? The public sector. Um, And I was... Yeah, and I was also going to mention in terms of Cuomo's role, um, he will come out and talk about, you know, when it's time for re-election, he'll say, count me in to the building trades, folks. And he'll say, yes, I'm all about safe staffing to the nurses' unions. And whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. slogan to say, I'll help y'all out, just um, endorse me, knock on some doors for me, get your members to phone bank for me. Um, but then once he's there, it doesn't happen. So this is the lead up to the pandemic where that whole shortage of, of personnel and hospital beds is is worse than it would be even, you know, if they weren't acting aggressively with these neoliberal policies. Um, mm-hmm. why, why do you think that, uh, do you have hope that in these wildcat strikes that are happening, that these actions that have begun on a small scale, do you have, do you have hope that they're going to that they're going to grow, that we're going to see large sustained action soon? I have a lot of hope. Um, I think we are entering a really grim, grim next several months or year. Um, the the level of unemployment. I mean, I think the sheer material. Um, experience for working class folks, homeless folks, um, essential workers is going to cause like social convulsion, which usually leads Mm. to labor unrest strikes. Um, People see what's going on and are infuriated. Going back to original question, among the nurses, are your views shared by a lot of the other nurses Um, in terms of, you know, your, your sort of critical attitude towards the system, and is this attitude you were kind of suggesting, it's being shared across sectors as well, across service sectors, across delivery workers, and, you know, obviously Amazon and Whole Foods workers, and <clears throat> those, the quote-unquote essential workers. Um, I think there's two angles to look at that. There's, I'm openly socialist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist. My coworkers who talk to me long enough under, understand that about me, but mm-hmm. I'm also prim- <laughs> primarily we're fighting together against people who are exploiting us, and um, there are different levels of agreement politically, um, and we don't always get to the deeper discussions. Um, but what we do, what is widespread, is the feeling that the system has failed us, 
that healthcare systems should not be for profit, that that is the basis for um, the inadequate resources that we have, um, that when we don't have staffing, it's because they don't they only care about the bottom line. So there is a kind of um, critique of the logic that drives the distribution, the, the provision of healthcare. And and our and our working conditions. Like, is there? Do you, do you think that there's any chance that your colleagues and everybody just accepts that this happened, that they were not protected, that a lot of them are going to lose their jobs? You know, a lot of them are going to get pay cuts. A lot of them will get furloughed, and that they'll just go back to life as normal. And that you know that that something about the spirit of being a nurse, which, as you said, is a you know it's a job, it's a caregiver job. Most people who do it do it because they they want to do it as human beings to help other people. I think, is there any any chance that they just kind of like say, look, you know, this is over. I love this job and we're just going to accept these terms and go forward with it. I would have agreed with almost everything. I would say that everything you've said definitely exists among nurses, except mm-hmm. for the last part of I love this job. It's very hard to love this job now yeah. when we are not. <laughs> if so many nurses are burnt out and already thinking of, I'm going to hold on until I can retire or I'm going to see if how can I escape this hell. And it's not, we love taking care of patients, but so much uh, of what is required of us takes us away from patient care. Um, Sinai was 900 or 1,000. Montefiore was like 1,000 nurses short. We needed those nurses then, and we were ready to strike for it. And our negotiating bargaining committees settled you know and that's Mm -hmm. that's a direct like relationship between our leaderships and our ability to fight and really unleash our willingness to fight um and so even now so why do you yeah no i was just gonna ask why do you continue pushing your politics through the union you know why trust the union as a body through which you can achieve these sorts of politics when you when these sorts of compromises are made all the time because the rank and file is absolutely where our potential is. It's the litmus test for whether or not the union is truly democratic, it's combative. I do think the power is in the rank and file and unions, uh, there's only like 6% of the workers in the private sector are unionized. So it's not that that's the only organization we can rely on, but it is the only workers organization that organizes millions of the working class. Yeah. Yeah, just real, really quick. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about your kind of international politics, because you talked about being an anti-imperialist. And I know Left Voice, you know, you guys do a lot of publishing of worker voices and, and left voices from around the world. To what extent do you think the kind of socialist organizing you're doing right now during the virus is part of a global movement? Well, it's already so I'm part of um, an international current. It's called Trotsky's Fraction. And our goal is to develop real forces that have an influence on reality. So not to be a testimonial left, you know, that that mm-hmm. we love to just be right about things and we love to just, you know, point to the, the problem. We actually want to make <laughs> a, a difference. We want to see... <laughs> We want to be tested, you know, we, we need to be tested by reality, by class struggle, and we want to build a, 
a revolutionary, you know, workers' leadership in the world. Um, we're not that <laughs> yet, um, but we, you, we do see, um, you know, even folks that were coming out of the Yellow Vest movement, we see workers in Italy went on strike to shut down non-essential manufacturing. Um, we saw mm-hmm. people, people in Latin America who are fighting against Bolivia's censorship because they're using um, the pandemic to actually repress yeah. freedom of speech. So yeah. there's, um, how do I see it? I think the working class, the world around is affected. There's no safe haven from um, the ills of capitalism and now also the pandemic. Uh, and I think that yeah. capitalism has no borders. It's global. Um, us workers are the same. We often don't understand or don't have the confidence in that. Um, but that's why I do think it's important to have political organizations that really discuss that, develop those ideas and try to help workers um, come to those kinds of conclusions and like really put a spotlight on their struggles yeah. where, where they Thank should you be. For, thanks for coming on, Frey. Um, and uh, yeah, good luck with all these endeavors. You know, we're all rooting for you. It was great. Thank you. Thank y'all so much. It was great talking. Thank you.